Continuing our series, Systematic Theology on the Atonement. Um, main idea here for our study tonight is the atonement of Christ accomplishes what all of humanity could never achieve. And when we mean the atonement, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and mark a place in Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16, if you read that for your quiet time, it's an awesome, awesome passage because of the Old Testament sacrifice is basically a picture of what Jesus would do. And if you've got a Bible with headings, it should just read there on the top of chapter 16, the Day um, of Atonement. So as you're turning there, I'm just going to walk through a few basic passages, uh, parts of that passage. Literally, the word atonement would mean to cover. And so when we speak of atonement, it means a covering. A covering of what with what? Well, um, Leviticus 16 is the Day of Atonement. And what they, what they had is they said you have to take a bull... And on that day, it's the sin offering. And they would kill the bull, and they would sprinkle some of the blood on what's called the mercy seat. There's a lot of interesting imagery here. The mercy seat that's above the Ark of the Covenant there. They would sprinkle the blood of the bull on the mercy seat. And there was also another ram that they would offer as a burnt offering. Then even more interesting, ram number two was the scapegoat. To where the priest would take his hands and he would lay it on the head of the goat. And then they would basically exile and banish this goat. They would have someone who would lead it outside of where the people were living and the goat would be basically pushed into the wilderness. Symbolically, when the priest was placing his hands on the goat's head... It was a picture of placing the collective, the total guilt of the people on this goat. And so you think about it, in the Ark of the Covenant, you've got the Ten Commandments, you've got all of what is holy, all of what God has done, uh, Aaron's rod that budded, you've got manna, you've got all of these amazing things. The Ark of the Covenant is kind of like the box of Israeli history of God saying, I'm still for you guys, even though you have turned your backs on me time and time again. And then above it, you've got this thing called the mercy seat. When the blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat, it was a symbol. God's mercy always is connected with sacrifice. And when I was was studying... um, Parts of this, I found this picture. It was just very, very, very moving when we think about the atonement. Because I'm sure that those priests, when they brought in the bull, when they brought in the goat, they understand these animals have no idea what's about to happen. Just like Jesus, like a lamb before the shears, or a lamb going to the slaughter, he uttered not a word. And then thinking of that, the death of the innocent. Think about what Jesus has done for us. The death of the innocent is the only thing that could ever connect a rebellious people to a perfect and holy God. So when we break down the parts tonight, I I hope that that this is transformational for all of us. That we would remember once again that it is the covering, it is the blood of Christ that forgives sin. And I don't know about you, but I know for myself that I was, if I was ever negligent, 
picked up my phone and I was texting and I looked up and there was a person there and I hit the person, killed him, sent him to the hospital. I mean, can you imagine the type of feeling that that would cause? That you accidentally did harm to someone. Bad. But then you think about the animals that were sacrificed and then you think about the Lord Jesus. You think about not all or His or hers, but my sin did to the Lord Jesus. And I think that it absolutely and should totally bring us to our knees. If we've been walking with pride, it should totally humble us. So what the Moody Handbook of Theology says about the atonement. The emphasis of the New Testament, however, is that Christ died a substitutionary death on behalf of sinners. Now how many of us, if by raising our hands, would agree with the statement, this is not a trick question, that Jesus died so that sinners could be saved? That's what we believe that the Scripture teaches, that He died for us. But when you kind of step out of evangelical Christianity, you find a few more theories. And we'll just go through a few of these. <clears throat> you'll see that. I didn't get it on your sheet. Number one would be the ransom to Satan theory. In fact, we went through this with our Bible study leaders a few months ago. Uh, Origen said that ransom had to be paid to Satan because people were held captive by him. Now, it's a very interesting theory, right? But what may be some problems if Satan is the one who the price is paid to? Wouldn't wouldn't you say that that may seem like Satan is the one in charge? Now, here's a question. When a person is unsaved, are they under the dominion and the darkness of Satan and the enemy? Yes, we, we know that, right? The Bible says that you know the, the, the natural man understands not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Neither can he understand them because they're spiritually discerned or spiritually understood. But the question is, who is the ransom paid to? So then um, Irenaeus comes along. He said it's the recap- recapitulation. That's the way we should understand the atonement. She explains it that Christ experienced all that Adam did, including sin. Now, we believe that Jesus suffered for our sin, but we don't believe that Jesus actually sinned. What may be some problems, just quick draw apologetics here, of Jesus who experienced what it was like to actually commit sin? What may be a problem with that, with the way that we understand the Bible describing Jesus? Yeah, no longer perfect holy sacrifice. I mean, that's good, right? Like Hebrews, that he can identify with our weaknesses. But I don't, I don't know about y'all, but a Savior who knows what it's like to be a jerk, to be selfish, to be arrogant, prideful, lustful, greedy, that kind of would cause me to think once or twice or a lot more times before I trust Him with my, with my salvation. Uh, number three, commercial satisfaction. Anselm uh, said that sin robbed God of honor and Christ's death honored God, enabling Him to forgive sinners. Now, this is an interesting point. 1033 to 1109, that's when Anselm lived. 
What may be for our history buffs, what are some things kind of going on during that time in the European world? Anybody remember? Okay, okay. It's come, coming up on it. Anything to have to do with Europeans going to the Middle East? Crusades. This is a warrior culture. This is the time of Christian jihad. So obviously as a theologian, he's going to try to connect with the king slash soldier warriors. And what is greater for a warrior than honor? Nothing. Victory and honor are one and the same. So what he's saying is that basically God doesn't care any more uh, than, than a soldier, which would be all about honor. Which what is what is the reigning characteristic that we see of God in the Bible? Bingo, Isaiah, holy, holy, holy. Love comes from holiness. You can't be loving if you're not holy, right? So it's not it's not God's honor that's top on the list. Although God's honor comes from the fact that He is holy. Let's go to the moral influence. Uh, Abelard, Peter Abelard. Christ's death is unnecessary to atone for sin, but his death softens sinners, uh, their hearts, and causes them then to repent. In other words, Jesus, when you study Jesus, it's just like one of those things. And this is true to a certain extent. Have you ever, you ever thought about the Lord? Or you've been in a sermon where Jesus has just been lifted up? Or you've watched the crucifixion of Jesus on, on a movie or the Passion of the Christ and you're just touched? Everything right about that. But Abelard's saying that that's basically the point of Jesus' death to affect our hearts so that it will cause us to repent. Part of it, obviously that's a byproduct, but that's not the point. Um, Little side issue, Peter Peter Abelard was actually hired um, by uh, European king uh, to tutor his niece named Heloise. Long story short, this is really big in church history books. Uh, They got in a situation they should not have been into. And um, king who hired him paid thugs to make sure that he would never be with uh, a woman again. And a very, very sad story. You can do a Google search on it. Peter Abelard and Heloise. It's a very, very, very powerful story to tell to youth uh, today about staying staying pure. Um, example theory. Uh, so Sinius, he said, Christ's death is unnecessary to atone for sin. His death was an example of obedience to inspire reform. Now, we hear some of this today, right? Like Jesus Christ superstar. In other words, Jesus was there just, I mean, and just, just take a step back. When you read the New Testament, isn't Jesus an awesome character? I mean, wouldn't you have loved to, to, to have heard him cutting down the Pharisees, proving everyone wrong, elevating the people who had been broken? It was kind of like Jesus went around healing broken hearts and breaking hardened, prideful hearts. But don't you think there's something more to Jesus' life and death than simply inspiring us? The governmental uh, theory from Grotius, he said, Christ upheld government and God's law. 
Uh, His death was a token payment which enables God to set law aside and forgive people. So this I would call, if you want to take notes, the shady judge theory. Okay? In other words, Jesus did so much good that God's like, I mean, you went down there and you put up with him. You put up with Peter. I mean, hello. You, you, You didn't go around killing people, which most would want to do if you were Jesus. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to set my law aside and I'm going to allow this to work out. That's called a shady judge. And then you've got good old Albert Schweitzer. You remember old Albert Schweitzer, right? Here's what he said. Christ became enamored with a Messiah complex and was mistakenly crushed under it in the process. That'll preach, won't it? Which, by the way, said that uh, Schweitzer's uh, operating area there at his ministry or his mission in Africa, he believed that all living things were equal, so he would not sanitize things. Long, interesting story on liberal theology there, but basically Jesus is just a guy. That's it. So, we've got 14 minutes to unpack with the New Testament. Y'all ready for the good stuff now? We gotta get through the good, we gotta get through the bad stuff to know what, cause here's the thing. A lot of people today, they may not know, for example, they may not spout off the Simeon 1539 to 1604, but they may have an idea that Jesus is just a reformer, right? Just, watch out, a revolutionary. They may not know a lot of the background, but the same ideas are the same. So then when they tell you that, when you witness to them to say, Jesus, have you ever given your life to Jesus? Have you ever been saved? They're like, well, and they're thinking Jesus is just a really awesome political guy. Our questions don't even make sense to them because they're thinking, why would I repent to a reformer? Why can't I just take his ethical ideas to make myself a better person? So we're about to learn is how to unpack what the Bible says and how that can influence a person. Number one would be the substitution, um, which is stepping in and absorbing the penalty. Let's read Isaiah 53, 4-6. It says, now notice here in this passage the concept of Jesus as our substitute. Not just an example, but taking our penalty. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was the substitute. Now let me stop right here. Between what we believe, um, biblical, evangelical Christianity, liberal scholarship would have a major problem with what we just said. Because do you know the problem if we begin to say that Jesus is our substitute? It's We're literally saying that God requires sacrifice. And if God requires sacrifice and the New Testament is true, then God required the brutal torture and death of His own Son. And as 20th and 21st century Americans, we just don't like the idea of violence. 
So if this is actually saying what it's clearly saying, then that means that God has a desire for vengeance. And what do we say to that? Hmm? Yeah, yeah, just say yes. It's so freeing. We don't have to feel that we're the ones who have to... So why don't you explain your crazy theories? I mean, go ahead and go the full nine yards. Say, yes, we believe that the God of the Bible requires a penalty for sin. Now, we can unpack the love of God after we explain this. Like, we believe that Jesus suffered and died for our sin. And we believe that He's coming back on a white horse one day. And we believe that He's even got a tap on His right thigh that says, Right, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, do you want to come with us? I mean, go ahead and go the full nine yards, because we are always pushed in the corner, aren't we? Especially, you know, with the culture at large, we're the ones who have to explain constantly why we're not nuts. Y'all notice that? We have, I mean, we've got to do all sorts of stuff. Now, this is rational. We have, at the end of the day, say, here's what I believe. Because we know through the witness of the Holy Spirit that it's true. And I think a lot of people are just looking for somebody to say, yeah, I believe that. And I think that you should too. We'll unpack the love of God in just a minute. Because we're not, we don't want to put the two at odds with one another. Substitutions. 1 Peter 2, uh, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Number two. Redemption, it's an act of purchase. Uh, Moody Handbook, Paul Enns writes this, Bought is the Greek word agorazo, which pictures a slave being purchased in the ancient public slave market. Christ purchased believers out of the slave market of sin and set them free. Amen? That's what he did. Redemption, text, 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought with a price... So glorify God in your body. That's an awesome, awesome text. Another one, 1 Corinthians 7.23. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. You know what this is saying? Because Jesus gave His all to buy us for the glory of God and to save us from ourselves, don't live your life worried about what other people think about you. Be courageous. Live for the one who bought you and not for people who you don't even like anyway. Right? Number number two, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13a, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed or you redeemed people for God. This is awesome. From every tribe, language, and people, and nation. God says, I like variety, so give me some from each group. Uh, Number three, propitiation, which is God's righteous standards fulfilled. Paul Enns also writes, propitiation, meaning that the righteous demands of a holy God were fully satisfied. Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over 
former sins. When people, and by the way, propitiation is a big no-no in liberal scholarship. Okay, People who would say the Bible contains the word of God, but is not the word of God. People who would say Jesus is an example, but he's not our substitute. The reason why this is a bad word is because, what do you think the Bible is referring to? Or ends is referring to when he says the righteous demands of a holy God. What does that look like? We can go Leviticus all the way to Jesus. Right. Right. Perfection. And since none of us are, there has to be a penalty for sin. Since God is righteous, he's got to give us justice. Justice for us is not good. But because God is love, He sent His own Son to be the propitiation for our sins to where God's wrath was poured out on Jesus perfectly and in Jesus, God's love was demonstrated perfectly. So you get you get both. <clears throat> Number four, forgiveness, which is the legal basis. All right, Think a courtroom here. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling... Notice notice the legal framework, the terminology here. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside... Now, if it just said that He set it aside, shady judge. But He set aside how? Nailing it to the cross. And the word for forgive in the Greek New Testament literally means to send away. You can use the same concept for an archer pulling back and releasing an arrow to somebody taking a big pile of garbage and just letting it fly. It means to send it away. And God is through Christ to send our sin away. Number five, justification, which is the legal decision. And says that justification is also a legal act in which God, the judge, declares the believing sinner righteous. Now here's the question. Upon what basis can God declare us righteous without lying? Penalty was paid. See how this fits together? This is so, this is so logical. This is so reasonable to believe in this. It's just, I, you know, and this is the thing too. If you know people that are, you know, thinkers and always, well, what about this? What about this? Give them a big old good theology book and say, start working through it. I mean, you can spend your life um, using all of your intellectual energy and you will never exhaust the word of God because it's amazing. So here's what we want to discuss before we go. In what ways should the atonement affect our response when we are offended by others? What do you think? Compassion for others. Exactly. Sometimes when you're tempted to be offended... That still small voice says, you know, you were forgiven an awful lot. Mm. That's a great word. You, you, You see how this is not just something that's called theology? It's over here in this realm. But it's something that's real. Like you said, Ben, sharing with compassion, realizing how much we've been getting. With me, I see myself as the one in that parable. Remember Matthew 18, the parable of the man who had borrowed basically like $10 million. King called him in, called the debt, 
He's going to have to sell you and your family into slavery. God doesn't have any money. The king says, because I'm rich and because I'm good, this is a paraphrase, I'm going to absorb your the stupidity of your financial decisions. You're free to go. And the king forgives him his debt. And then the guy goes out, which is representative of us when we're offended by other people. Scholars say between 20 or 50 bucks. And he takes that guy who owed him the 20 or 50 bucks by the throat and begins to, like a vice, clamp, choke the guy saying, pay me what you owe me. When I think about, when I think about being offended by people, being mistreated, always want to remember what my sin did to the Lord Jesus, but yet God in His mercy has given me grace. So because I've received grace that I would never be able to earn or merit, how can I not, through God's power, right, through God's power, because it's humanly impossible to forgive. People say, it's, it's hard. Like when you've really been run over, and we're talking about done wrong, it's humanly impossible to fully forgive. But through the power of Christ, you say, I can, I can release. So number two, and finally, how should the atonement <clears throat> um, affect uh, our view of the use of our time? Sorry, Miss Betty, for the typo again. What do you think? Since we've been redeemed, since our lives have been purchased by Christ, to be used for His glory. How should that practically affect how we use our time? Yeah, fulfilling His commission. That's it. That, in a nutshell, that's it. We can use our jobs. We can use our hobbies. To do that. And um, I don't know about y'all, but growing up in church, when I heard stories from missionaries and people who were really serving the Lord, some of these men who had been saved in the church, and I think one of the things that really caused me through, my parents were very godly to teach me the Word. But one of the things that made such an impact on me is seeing men that I knew there in Louisiana, in Luling, Louisiana, who didn't care anything about God, And then one day, somebody went to their house, they visited them, they shared the gospel, or those guys came to church and we had one of those crazy evangelists that was back in the day when you had just an evangelist to come through, I mean, pop in a magazine and just, I mean, unload their bodies all over the place. I mean, just like rip-roaring preaching. They would come, they would be broken, and they would get saved. And I'm like, this is the same guy that was out drinking all the time and mistreated his wife and his kid because I'm friends with this kid. And now he's at church and trying to bring people to Jesus Christ. But I never understood the joy in that until I got saved. Most of y'all, I hope all of us here tonight understand what that means to truly invest your life into pouring it into the gospel bin, like you said, the Great Commission, and serving other people so that they'll see that God is great. And that's where the joy is.